0: Welcome to Plato's Cave. I'm Jordan Myers, and today we're going to take another step towards exiting the cave by speaking with the philosopher Peter Boghossian. Peter appeared on the show about nine months ago. I spoke to him previously in August, which was just before his book launch for his newest book, How to Have Impossible Conversations. Peter has also written another book, A Manual for Creating Atheists, and has a leading role in the Atheos app. Peter Bogosian is a full-time faculty member at Portland State University in the philosophy department, and he and I spoke today about the future of academic philosophy and about academic humanities in general. Um, I, I really, I mean, I just found this conversation hugely um, valuable and interesting and also inspiring and really motivating for me. So I hope you um, find it useful and enjoyable as well. Peter was actually uh, killing two birds with one stone and um, on a walk during this podcast. So if there's wind noise or he sounds out of breath, well, that was just because of that. But hopefully the sound quality is up to par. And um, without further preamble, here is my conversation with Peter Bogosian. Well, yeah, I mean, first of all, uh, thanks for uh, for doing this again. It's closing in on not quite a year since we talked last. I think I, I spoke to you just before your book came out in August of last year.
1: Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. Well, thanks for having me on, man. Appreciate it.
0: Yeah, of course. Um, So, I think we're, um, you know, the first conversation we had was pretty centralized on the the book and its release. Um, But I kind of want to open up the conversation a little bit today. Um, And the book,
1: my last book, How to Have Impossible Conversations.
0: Oh, yes. That's right. Um, Yes. So, uh, and you co-authored that with uh, James Lindsay, who's a friend of the show. That's correct. Yeah.
1: He's a friend of the show and uh, (laughs) a Grievance Studies Fellow in Crime and the uh, <laughs> uh all the we published a ton of stuff together, done yeah. a ton of events together, et cetera, et cetera. Good buddy.
0: Yeah. Um so basically I, I was hoping to um to sort of open this up and I know you you sent me a um, an op ed um piece that you did. Uh you know to to kind of ground the conversation but um I guess so to contextualize it this new show because um, when I interviewed you before that was for a yeah. podcast I was doing called that's BS yeah yeah yeah. and basically that. that has sort of transitioned to a, a more sort of free-form discussion show and um, I started like a new podcast called Plato's Cave which uh, oh, cool. you're gonna appear on now yeah and it's oh. basically a um, sort of a, a strictly philosophical podcast. Um,
1: oh, interesting.
0: Cool. Yeah, it's it sort of, um, you know, I wanted to kind of segment the two areas of interest for me um, mm-hmm. and and use this as sort of my um, my prelude to hopefully returning to grad school, which is something I want to talk oh, to you cool. about. Oh, so, cool. yeah. So, so you're a professor of philosophy at Portland State. Um, I was curious what actually made you interested in doing philosophy for a living
1: uh what got me what got me into philosophy i had a lot of really bad philosophy teachers and i always (laughs) found that to be utterly inexcusable and i thought that it could be taught in such a way as to make it interesting to make complex ideas understandable and exciting and i really had a i just didn't see a lot of that Hmm. so and and I also had a love. I've always had a love of Plato. Yeah, not an, necessarily in agreement with Plato, but a love of the ideas and the engagement and the text and the scholarship. And I never really saw. I just saw it devolve into obscurantism. And this guy said this about this about this commentary, and <laughs> it's just so far from what I think Plato would have envisioned yeah so i guess it was born out of this could be done so much better this is an amazing opportunity let's give that to folks
0: that's interesting um that that you say it was sort of born out of uh wanting more from your philosophy professors Um, because it was really interesting actually in in high school i took this class um that was kind of philosophical um Uh i think it was called like introduction to humanities or something and um and it was taught you know i guess as well as a high school course can be taught on philosophy but Right. It sort of piqued my interest. But, you know, it, I, I, in retrospect, in, in retrospect, I don't really think it was taught that well. And I, I remember oh. my freshman year, my first semester of college, I took a course called Introduction to Philosophical Problems. Um, right. And we went through we used as, you know, sort of a backbone, a ton of the Socratic dialogues. And right. that's what made me fall in love with philosophy. Um, so that's that's really, really cool that you um, you kind of relate to that, too.
1: Yeah, and, and I think I wrote an art piece a few years ago, a long, long time ago, about the role of the educator as challenging students' beliefs. Mm. And people lost their fucking minds about that. <laughs> and I think that that is the role. That is a role of, especially in philosophy, I can't necessarily speak to other disciplines as, as well, particularly those that extend into the hard sciences. But look, here, here's an idea about I don't know, myth of the metals or whatever you want to say. Here, here's some idea from Plato. we just talked about Plato, but, um, you know, what is justice? What mm-hmm. is, why should you obey the law? Whatever it is. Um, and then challenging whatever the dominant moral orthodoxy is, or even the non-dominant moral orthodoxy, like, okay, you believe this, and just pushing in, but doing so in a way that has, that retains its academic integrity and not to bludgeon people with a cudgel. Sometimes in law school, that's how the Socratic method is used. But using elements of the Olympus to expose contradictions, to have positive epistemological ambitions as well. And I, I don't. I just think that the whole academy has shifted away from those things. And I'm not a big fan of Paulo Freire by any stretch. But you know, this whole banking pedagogy, just like um you, like you put stuff in a bank or you know there's a right answer and you, you you write that down and you replicate that and i think that that is not just an epistemic injustice but it's also doing students a pedagogical and even moral injustice so i wanted to perhaps naively perhaps arrogantly i thought i had a, an approach that people would would find um challenging because i believe like aristotle and plato that people want to know what's true they want to know true things wisdom begins in wonder
0: yeah yeah and and you know socrates never um tried to change someone's mind by um you know by shaming him on twitter either <laughs> that's
1: that is certainly if any true statement could ever be made that would be it
0: <laughs> so i i want to get into um to the things that you're alluding to with um, your sort of uh, critiques of, of where philosophical academia is now. But I was just curious. Yeah, um, it's
1: heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking.
0: Yeah. Did So it, it's funny. I was tempted to ask you, you know, did your controversy start with the conceptual penis paper? But I mean, controversy is a weird word for it because it almost implies you've done something wrong. Um, which which I don't think you have in any way. Um,
1: the co- controversy started years before that when I was part of the New Atheist Movement. Ah. Controversy started... So, I, I mean, that's what I was doing full-time. I was heavily doing the, the New Atheism stuff. Jeez, tra- world tours, et cetera, et cetera. And I um, was always amazed, the Grievance study stuff, as atheism was ripped apart by social justice... Uh, Lindsay calls social justice a, with an uppercase S and J a mm. universal solvent. It just destroys everything it touches. Mm. So I, I then did the grievance study stuff, but it's almost as if all the stuff that I did before that was, I don't know, it didn't matter as I don't know, it just wasn't known for that, that kind of work, but it's always sent, always, the theme of my work has always been what is a rigorous epistemology? How can we gain that for ourselves how can we help others have rely on an epistemology upon which they can rely simply by speaking with them that was my dissertation and then I extended that in my published articles and I work so the theme of the article is like a string through pearls it's always maintained a kind of consistency but you know the pearl or whatever else you're dropping on the string whether it's faith-based beliefs or religious beliefs or the grievance studies, the social justice, the woke culture, it's, it, that, that stuff has changed. But at, at its core, it's always, always dialectic and epistemology.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I, I mentioned this in our first conversation, but it was, it was really funny to me, I guess, to, um, to kind of see you practice really the same central tenets, um, but just under sort of a different note. Because um, I was familiar with your work, way back when you published um, your first book, which is a manual for creating atheists. Um, right. And obviously there's huge, you know, parallels between that book and how to have impossible conversations. Right, um, right. Ha- has your sort of notoriety or um, controversial public profile, I'm curious, made academic life harder? Um, Much harder,
1: and- Consist- very, very hard. Yeah, no, no question about it. How so? Um, gosh, there's just I was just talking to a buddy of mine about that today. We asked a similar question. There's no question about it that there is a kind of resentment uh, of people who like a kind of resentment of look at a guy like Jordan Peterson. How many academicians were resentful of him because he was getting the attention? He was doing things they couldn't do. They tried to shame him. If you there's a thing called H-index. You can go to Google Scholar and Peterson. Whatever you think about his, let's say that he, you think he's a horrible person, and his ideas are asinine. Great, look at his h index, which is his kind of scholarly gravitas. It's just, it's, it's just enormous. Hmm. Um, and you know, I'd see things like, "Oh, our Jordan Peterson's ideas worth debating." I mean, so, so I do think that when you, you know, uh, if I, I publish some pieces in the New York Times, the Wall Street. Journal, it never happened when I published in Scientific American, but when I went to popular pieces, National Review, New Republic, or what have you, or let's New Statesman, USA Today, LA Times, trying to think, it doesn't even matter. But the point is when, when you do that stuff, there's a, a kind of built-in deep-seated resentment of public success. And, and there's a kind of culture where, oh, you know, we shouldn't do that. So if you ever noticed, I don't know if you've lived in France or Germany, but they interview philosophers on air with, you know, some 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 frequency. I've never, ever seen that here ever in my whole life. And I'm 53. (laughs) I've never a single time seen that.
0: So I can't say I have either.
1: Yeah. So why why is that? Well, because the discipline values obscurantism, and it goes to obscurity make sure I don't get run over by this car because, um, because it, it, it's almost like it prides itself on being so esoteric, nobody can understand it, building silos and silos within silos. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there are a lot of w- reasons for that. Clarity has never been a virtue, particularly among the French.
2: So
1: the <laughs> famous uh, Dan Dennett relates a famous story that Foucault told him about why he his stuff is so unclear. And Foucault said that, you know, unless 25% of your stuff is just unclear, no one will take you seriously as a thinker. I think that's uh, that's part of it.
0: That's awful. But yeah,
1: it's, it's really a heartbreaking turn that philosophy has taken.
0: Hmm. H- how has um, the, you know, like the difficulties that you just expounded on, um, has that changed your teaching experience at all?
1: Yeah, it it has. Um, I mean it's changed I mean it's changed everything. It's changed things with my colleagues, you know, it's it's changed I mean I think I mean like I think to a certain extent it's the type of work that I do. Sorry about the noise. I oh, think fine. it's the type the type of work that I do. I think that if I worked on something that was truly well, Either if I did what I was doing but it garnered no traction or mm-hmm. attention, people wouldn't care, or if I took something that was like in alignment with the dominant value of the age, whatever is morally fashionable today, and I trumpeted that, I think pe- the reaction wouldn't have been as harsh. But it is, it, it's, it's, I'm trying to say this, I'm trying to, I'm filtering myself when I say this because I don't want to seem um, I usually don't like to filter myself, but I, I don't want to make it seem like, oh, I'm so, so anything other than what the situation is. But there's no question that, that that's made my life uh, difficult. My colleagues hate me for the most part. Some just even despise me. Some like me, but they all, all, all the people who like me just whisper thank you to me. They never
2: say it out loud.
1: Wow. But it's made my life very difficult. Because you've got to remember, too, it's, um, university is really an anti-meritocracy in a sense. And so your success is viewed as, you know, why is, and there are so many metrics for success, but, you know, how many students, what's your end-of-course survey metrics, um, you know, what are your uh, your public profile, what's your citation, you know, how many pieces do you have, uh, whatever community services, and, and just, yeah, so it hasn't worked out very well for me at all. And that's the other thing is everyone's like, oh, you fucking grifter, you grifter. Well, it's interesting. I haven't made a penny out of all the shit. Well, maybe a (laughs) few hundred bucks for articles here and there. But for the most part, uh, this has just been I've done it because I felt that it had to be done because I feel very, very strongly. In fact, I'll use the word no, that people are using methods of reasoning that are simply leading them astray from the truth. And they're divisive and they're hurting people. And. The idea that this is somehow grifting is an excuse to not do the intellectual work to develop arguments against my positions or the positions for which I've advocated. So it is frustrating, yeah. But you know, the other side of that is like, you go to an airport and people are really, you know, they're really cool, they'll come up to me or walking down the street almost everywhere I go and people are like, hey, you know, or at least in Portland or, you know, maybe 60, 70% of the times I'm in airports and people will, I go to the lounges, people will come up and start talking to me, and that's pretty cool. <laughs> so, you know, there's a flip side to that, too. They'll thank me, and I just appreciate that because the truth is, I couldn't do what I do unless I had support from somebody because I certainly have anti support from within the institution and enmity. Just, so,
0: yeah, yeah, and you, you, um, i should I should plug the book again, but, um, your new book, which is excellent: How to Have Impossible Conversations, you talk about how, you know there's this um <clears throat> there's this linkage, I guess, between ascribing sort of a moral status of evil to people that we disagree right. with. Um, and that that's exactly it's a very lazy way to um to combat someone's arguments because, you know, if I had a good argument against something you were saying, I have no idea why I would ever choose to, to morally attack your character instead exactly. of your argument, if I just thought it was wrong. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Bingo. You get the, you get the gold stars. When I was, <laughs> my, my kid was in second grade, he used to get gold stars, if they said good <laughs> things. You get the gold star. You, you wouldn't need to slander someone or attack their character, or tell everybody they're a rapist or they beat their family or whatever else there is, uh, if you had evidence against their position. Mm. the the only reason you do that is because the confidence you have in your evidence if you've calibrated on a scale is not commensurate with the actual evidence that you have for holding the belief so you have to make up the differential somehow that difference you have to make it up
0: yeah yeah that's always struck me as very transparent and i'm i'm always shocked that it's not more transparent to more people um but i i don't know so i i wanted to um because I read uh, today this, um, this opinion piece you published with James Lindsay. It's called uh, Diluted Departments, um, and you published this in December of last year.
1: Uh, was uh, that an opinion piece? I, they might have listed it in the, as an opinion piece, yeah. Yeah, Diluted Departments. It was in the Philosopher's Magazine. It came out in the hardcover, and then they, I asked for it to be published online. It
0: came out online. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's in the opinion section. Um, yeah, okay. But regardless... Uh, so it was an interesting read um, and I agreed with a lot in there um, but I'm curious to kind of drill down and and unpack what you mean in a few places too Um,
1: why don't we why don't we go over the thesis first
0: sure so you um and and jump in if I go astray but you basically say that um, you know because it, you know smarter and more educated people are better at rationalizing beliefs that they arrived at for unintelligent or uneducated reasons
1: yeah that's uh, Shermer's that's Shermer, not me who who gave that insight.
0: sure. do you want to just go ahead and you tell me your thesis then?
1: I should I shouldn't have interrupted you sorry. I just didn't want to take credit for an idea that wasn't mine.
0: oh um, no no, no that's that's fine
1: yeah so so Michael Shermer came up with that idea mm-hmm. in why smart why the believing brain and why people believe mm. weird things
0: mm.
1: was one of the chapters. Why do smart people believe r- weird things?
2: And <laughs> yeah. In the
1: interest is because they're better at rationalizing, and rationalizing does not mean reasoning too. Mm. It's you know it's coming up with a, a, a coming up with with good reasons for bad conclusions. Smart people are better mm. than that. Smart people are better at that. So yeah. I took that idea. If it happens with one people, that is. One of the main reasons, if not the main reason, there are answer reasons as well for why people believe, why smart people believe weird things. And then I just analogized that or um, I just um, extended that, if you will, outward to why groups of sm- smart people believe really weird things. And groups of smart people are even better at rationalizing bad ideas than individuals. And that just intuitively makes sense,
2: right?
0: hmm yeah, there, are are you familiar? There's this. I, I wish I could credit the authors. Um, there's this really, really. Uh, it, it, well, it's wonderful, but it's also disheartening. Um, social psych study where people were given raw data, um, and it was there was a valence put on the raw data. In Uh-oh. in the first scenario, um, you know, they were told it was for like an acne cream, and they had yeah. to interpret how well the data supported that this new cream works better than the old cream um right. and people of a higher intelligence were better at you know figuring out the right answer than unintelligent right. people but then they um they switched the valence of the data and made it about gun control and huh. it was huh. it, and that actually the smarter you were And they they measured people's, you know, political scales as well on this. But the smarter you were, the better and more reliably you would arrive at the incorrect interpretation of the data than if you were unintelligent, which is is disheartening. That
1: that perfectly supports the thesis. And that is a a very cogent explanatory mechanism for how we're in this fucking mess that we're in now.
0: Mm. So... So you say? Being, um, be, so yeah. before
1: you go on, so so sure. being smart is not a prophylactic against believing weird things. It actually mm. makes it worse. And you know,
2: yeah.
1: I think the thing is saying, "Oh, that's a really smart person. He believes this, and if he's really smart, well, okay. Just because somebody's really smart, again, that's the mechanism that's in play to keep the belief in place in in their cognitive, you know, the, the, the way in their their belief life." Mm -hmm. So, okay. So then, all right, so go ahead.
0: Sure. So you, um, so then you kind of continue in the article and I'm basically going a little bit just chronologically. So if you want to skip around, just, um, feel free to interrupt me. But, uh, so, so you say that, you know, the academic philosophers of this day and age, um, sort of, you know, they, they make this into a bit of a game where they're defending, you say, essentially semantic conclusions. Um, even worded as metaphysical discoveries, and developing right. endless streams of esoteric ideas that most people find vacuous or irrelevant. Um, right. So I was curious, what uh, were some examples of that?
1: Uh, in the paper, we we used uh, lots of examples. I don't know if we use one for that, but I would say that almost any speculation in metaphysics. So let's take a step back and look at the framework for that. You know, what is the furniture of the world from Aristotle's Metaphysics. You know what? What stuff is out outside, outside us, um, and then you know you have Merleau-Ponty and various people, different mm. ideas, and phenomenologists, et cetera, et cetera. But, but, like a really good thing. I went to a seminar a while ago about what is the the structure of the universe, and I thought to myself, boy, that's just idiotic. Like. <laughs> no no philosopher should be talking about the structure of the universe that question is best answered through science and a very specific type of science as well i would assume it's particle physics but i don't don't really know but just because you put a just because you you make a question out of something it doesn't make it a legitimate question i find this very frequently with metaphysics things questions in metaphysics so i think that there are these ideas that when v- wittgenstein the, la- the latter wittgenstein in particular talked about this I-, I think that we have i think that we've been hoodwinked by language and hmm. i think that hoodwinking comes in thinking that we can reason to conclusions about things i mean maybe there is no underlying structure of reality and the whole thing is nonsense hmm. that's the other reason why philosophers just aren't taken seriously in the public realm and again so that philosophers aren't taken seriously in media, et cetera. That's just a fact. Sure. The, the reason for that, we, we, can, we can debate. I have my own speculation. I, I don't know how confident I am in it. I mean, I guess I'm, beliefs are not binary, but I'm calibrated that to an eight or so. Okay. They're, just, they're just largely thinking about and talking about things that are, not only are those things largely irrelevant, uh, and people don't care about them, but they're doing so in a way that is ever more esoteric. We wrote about that in the piece for Russell Blackford's book, Does Philosophy Make Progress? Is Philosophy Making Progress? And we wrote about one of the best little papers that I would urge every single reader to do, and I would ask you to please put this in the comment section and, or, or the uh, description of wherever you post this, is Dan Dennett, philosopher Daniel Dennett's piece about Chemes? C-H-M-E-S-S. It's like I'm making a mess of chess. And we (laughs) talk about that in the Russell Blackford's Problems Philosophy about whether or not our answer has philosophy made progress. But okay, back to I was just a reference if anyone wants to look at it back to the paper.
0: Yeah, Um, so I I, so well, before we go back, I'm curious, would you put something like um, (laughs) I'm I'm curious if you would put something like actually what I'm I'm writing my uh, writing sample on um, yeah. free will and moral responsibility. Would you put that in the esoteric and vacuous um, category as well?
1: No, I, I, I wouldn't. Okay. But 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 I, I would say mm-hmm. that th- that's that's on the edge, but it's certainly not tilted <laughs> over to the it's certainly not tilted over the edge. No, okay. I think that that's that's philosophy worth doing. And remember the Dan Dennett thing: if it's not worth doing, or Dan Dennett mm. quoted someone, if it's not worth doing, it's not worth doing well.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, because I, I was curious what you would say about that, because um, you know, in the in the process of sort of researching for it and and writing it, and and I've been doing that for oh God, like a year at this point. Um, it, it it honestly has, I mean, it, it has very c- clear real world distinctions for me, at least. Yes. Um, with yes. respect to taking, you know, the objective or the reactive attitude, and when it's appropriate right. to do that. Um,
1: yeah, and I also, I also want to stress. I think that's good. I, I don't think all of philosophy, the goal of all of philosophy, should be to ameliorate human suffering or hmm. to raise up the fl- flourishing of human beings. Certainly, it would be good if far more of it did that than currently does. But we also need those gate, those librarians of, like, okay this person said this at this time about Aristotle, who said this about this. So, you know, we kind of need that, Dewey calls it the museum conception. We kind of need some, some people to do that, but those folks are grossly overrepresented in the academy and the, the, they're rewarded for it in terms of promotion, tenure and such, but they relegate themselves to continuous obscurity. And you know, my friend Brett Weinstein said something interesting. It's like that whole process of tenure I don't want to misquote him here but Mm -hmm. it really does make people um, risk averse overall. The whole thing it just pushes them to not take views on controversial opinions or if they are on Twitter which is a cesspool anyway they'll just post links and then say well I don't agree with this but here's here's a link or they won't there's this kind of the process itself makes people not willing to engage ideas contentious controversial ideas and then and then that's also i think a mechanism to understand why when people do they become resentful Mm. professional jealousy if you will
0: yeah no i mean i i can obviously i don't get a fraction of a fraction of the the, you know the 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 vitriol and the hate that you get um but it's it's funny i can really (laughs) I can really, really empathize with what you said about, um, you know, not not really wanting to, um, to, you know, to to wade into these muddy waters, um, because it's just, you know, I mean, I guess I I sort of am helpless, but to do otherwise, because this stuff just interests me. But it it really incentivizes you to just to to kind of parrot whatever is like you, you, you go on in the paper morally popular at the time.
1: Yeah. Okay, so that's fine. If, a, if, if one of my colleagues doesn't want to do that, that's fine. Just don't discharge your anger at me, not because necessarily of an idea I've espoused, but because that, that idea has gained traction, mm. right? Or that other people are listening and paying attention. And, and like, you don't have, nobody has to engage. Although the irony in this conversation we've not talked about is that Portland State's motto is, let knowledge serve the city and it's one of the reasons that i ended up in portland state because i had an idea that's the whole street epistemology right you take a po- mm-hmm. epistemology, which is a esoteric academic subject you put you take it to the street you take it to people let knowledge serve the city but i don't well i'm not going to comment but i i don't i don't i don't let me let me phrase it to you this more politic i don't see as much of that as i would like to live true to let the let knowledge serve the city
0: yeah. Yeah. That's, that's disappointing to hear. Um, but so, so on, on that, uh, aspect of defending what's morally fashionable, um, yeah. and, and I think, you know, for, for myself and for the audience who who's listening to this, I think this is a really good point to clarify that, um, you know, I don't think you're levying this accusation against all of philosophy. Cause I, I don't think you would, um, you would levy that against you know someone like peter singer with his radical claims on on welfare and what we morally owe or in
1: fact we give examples in the book of people okay so you should probably go go over the article but just to, just because this is a very important point that we should linger on yeah but i think you need a little more context. yeah peter singer's a great example and then look what they do to him They platform yep. him he's on that site like is your professor racist people are claiming he's a racist now so look at all this stuff and that's really like the ultimate stigma even even now in our society after these people have called every every single person who's racist racist and nazi who's jew they call him a nazi and so uh that word still has still has some some power to it so so he too has paid the price but we give examples of people who have not but even if you look at the case and we should probably talk about uh, what they've done to Rebecca Tuvell, Tuvel, and others who have,
2: yeah.
1: and and what, what's not in that piece is my colleague uh, at Bruce Gilley What they've done to him at Portland State University. Mm. Do, do, do you know him? Who uh, I
0: don't. I know the Rebecca Tuvell story, but uh, who 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 is it that you mentioned?
1: So Bruce Gilley has actually become a friend of mine, even though we have some uh, different meta- beliefs about metaphysics. Mm. Which, in my opinion, is totally irrelevant in this day and age. But mm. he wrote the piece, "The Case for Colonialism." Oh, and I actually, my son had questions, and he was kind enough to meet with my son over lunch and talk to my son about it. And yeah. he we had a title IX violation against him. People were posting things like "racist" on his door at work He really? at his home door. <clears throat> yeah, pe- people were people lost their fucking minds. So um, the journal editor eventually retracted the piece because of, quote, credible death threats, unquote. So why would you need a petition or credible death threats or any of that stuff if you could just rebut the piece? (laughs) That's the coin of the realm. That's what we do. That's what scholars scholars in universities ought to do, engage pieces in peer-reviewed journals. But these folks... They don't. They have, as I, as I wrote in my American Thinker piece, "Culture War 2.0: The Great Realignment." They have, they have manufactured their own rules of engagement, and this is part of their rules of engagement. Everybody who disagrees with them is a racist. Uh, you know that they have a you know, the militant wing of the ideology, espouses violence. They don't. They have deplatforming. They have their whole um, infrastructure. Of dealing with ideas they don't like, and dialectic and dialogue kind of wow. things that make the Western intellectual tradition, particularly the so- Socratic tradition that I love so much, yeah. it just is a slap in the face to that. So <laughs> anyway, so so that's sure. so that's both the so that's the Bruschieli and then the Rebecca Tuvell, which very prominent philosophers <clears throat> jumped on her because she took the wrong stance, and the paper was. It went through past peer review. It got published, et cetera. And then look what happened to her.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And the, the piece you're referencing is um, in defense of transracialism in the, yes. the feminist uh, philosophy journal Hypatia. So yes. from from what I understand Correct. from that, she basically argued that if someone could um, identify as a, a, a gender that they weren't born as, then yes. it might and she she really I mean, from what I recall, she really seemed to be sort of mulling over this um, and not it wasn't a, a super strong paper. But she she said, you know, we might want to consider that it could be legitimate for people to do that between races as well.
1: Yeah. And she used the example of I think I always pronounce her name on Rachel all. And so a couple things. Hypatia is one of the two leading journals in feminist philosophy. We also hoaxed Hypatia we're on the cusp of writing another so style hoax. Uh, Hypatia is just a purely ideological journal. It, they are really the worst of the worst. Um, but the, the paper, you, you could say the argument wasn't strong. You could say anything you want about it. But it was strong enough to pass a rigorous peer review and get accepted in the, uh, the one of the top two pres- most prestigious philosophy journals in, in the field in feminist philosophy. Yeah. So, all right. I mean, it passed. It passed their peer review by their standards, and then there was the whole. But the point. The larger point of this is, this is an example. You know, they used to call them cry bullies. This is an example of, ganging up on somebody, if you don't like the ideas they espouse, not making an argument against those ideas, and Mm. switching the rules of engagement.
0: Yeah. How much of that practice do you attribute to the fact that most people have a social media account? Because it just seems like, I mean, back in the day, you had these iconic, um, you know, letter exchanges between philosophers where they were just they were throwing haymakers at each other, but they were syllogistic haymakers. They weren't they weren't personal haymakers. Um, And it seems like that shift has really been a byproduct of the fact that we can all see what other people are writing about each other online.
1: I, I don't know the answer to your question, so I'm gonna just tell you the truth. I don't know. Yeah. I, I will say that Tom Nichols in the death of expertise talks about some something that, you know, years ago in the heyday, like the haymakers and such, people did that because they both had domain specific expertise. Now domain specific expertise has been replaced by I have so many subscribers on my YouTube channel, I have so many Twitter followers, I have you know, I'm a dude in my basement. What did Trump say in one of those debates? A 400 pound guy in my basement. You yeah. know, uh, I'm, I'm, so, so, so there is no, there is no, theres no There's has been a death of expertise a la Tom Nichols. And we actually see that given the current pandemic. And what I tried not to say that word, the current situation in which we find ourselves, right? It's a death of expertise.
0: Mm. Yeah. No, I, uh, no, I, I agree. Um, hmm. Yeah. It, it's something, I don't know. I, I I can't help but believe that that played a very causal role but again I don't I don't know the counterfactual there. Um
1: Yeah, I don't I don't know I don't know. It's, certainly I'm open to it but yeah. that's outside my area of expertise so I can't speak to it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Which is a refreshing thing to hear actually. Um <laughs> So so you um you you go on in the paper to talk about like the you know the problems of of all of these you know cognitive biases are They're conspicuous in the, quote, like, soft academic disciplines, um, Uh where conclusions are not kept on a leash by empirical testing. So this is something that I wanted to kind of unpack with you. Sure. So what do you see empirical testing doing for the humanities broadly, but then do you also differentiate philosophy from other perhaps more corrupted uh, disciplines like urban studies or, or oh my gender God, studies? thank you so
1: much. Thank you so much for asking me that question. Thank you, thank you. A thousand times over. So this is super important and I wish more focus were placed upon this. Okay, so we need to take a step back and take a look at this. So I don't know if any, and, and if someone listening to this knows of one, please do email me. It's an easy piece of data to find. Go through philosophy curricula and master's degree and PhD curricula and see if you can find courses teaching people about the Socratic method, uh, uh, about the scientific method. What's a double blind? How how do we make our our studies more robust, et cetera, et cetera? So people don't have that training. Or that expertise to understand uh, very very the, just the rudiments of this stuff and that's one of the reasons why we were able to get some of these papers in they, they had clearly broken methodologies they were they had a small and a small sample size but yet made unbelievable generalizations about things so th- there is a problem with people Who are not only not trained to think scientifically, which is obviously a problem, but they're not trained to value scientific thinking and the rigors of the process of falsification, et cetera, et cetera. Now that doesn't mean okay. So let's bracket that, and we can talk about if you want what that means and what that doesn't mean. But that's
0: Mm
1: -hmm. one of the ideas there.
0: Yeah. No. So the the interesting thing is is that um, so I. I might have mentioned it before, but I actually, um, have a degree in engineering and uh-huh. I, I think, you know, in my undergraduate study, um, it, it's been, honestly, I really, really value, you know, the, the engineering mindset, um, applied to philosophy. And I think a lot of people are kind of, um, you know, uh, taken aback when they hear that or maybe confused, but it, it really does seem like, um, You know, because you can obtain a philosophy degree without having to understand, you know, numeric causation, um, you know, just just, uh, you know, physical causation. I mean, even just taking a physics class, I think, is is just, you know, I mean, it doesn't even have to be it doesn't even have to be aimed at helping. Humanity is um, you know interpret scientific data or or scientific reasoning. I think it's just really exactly. Yeah So yeah.
1: so you so the piece that you're that we're talking about diluted departments was published in the philosophers magazine We published another piece in the philosophers magazine prior to that called if you want to be good at math it's in English, so they put the F in math, on math Pluralized it, but if you want to be good at math and science now, if you want to be good at math, if you want to be good at philosophy, study math and science. Mm-hmm. And to my amazement, that was like one of their highest pieces of all time. But we 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 talk about why that's so important in that paper. And when you understand that, then getting back to something I said previously, you understand why it's a kind of a silly question about the 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 ordering of reality or the the. The, the, the is there a fundamental why to reality and stuff Th- those questions are just silly you yeah. know is is what is the underlying nature of reality and so philosophy needs to stay in its lane my friend lawrence krauss has talked about that and had some good debates on that and philosophy or the scientific disciplines are increasingly encro- encroaching on philosophy so You know that museum that dewey's museum conception of philosophy again or of anything like oh this is interesting because like in in terms of intellectual survey or intellectual history people at time x believed y and you know descartes and the meditations Mm -hmm. and the pineal the pineal gland or what have you like these people this tape this isn't that interesting
2: Mm -hmm.
1: um but but we're now able to answer questions through science but if you don't have and understanding of science and what it is, you you'll keep thinking that you can answer questions. One, you will keep thinking that you could answer those questions to philosophy, because you won't, it's just simply ignorance. You won't know any better. And mm-hmm. two, you'll keep coming up. I mean, ideally, and its best, Krauss says that, that philosophy should be, should teach us the right questions to ask. But I would argue that it's, it's not only has it not done that, It's almost gone the other way entirely. It's made the questions worse. And that gets back to diluted
0: departments again. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So what about, um, because I'm very sympathetic to that, but at the same time, I I wonder about, um, you know, cautioning against empirical testing going too far as well. So would you apply that? to to debate sort of like, um, you know, free will or or to go back to Singer, like his shallow pond argument, because those seem to be sort of empirically free to me.
1: Okay, so let's so good. This is excellent. Okay. So let's take an example of a lot of the stuff coming out of gender studies departments. uh, And a lot of stuff coming out out of basically anything with the word studies. Before I do that, I have to ask you a question. Sure. What do you think the point, the whole point of peer review is? What's the point of that?
0: <sighs> hmm. I would, I would think as a lay person, um, semi lay person, I guess, that peer review would serve to not. It, it's sort of a buttress or a filter against publishing um, incorrect. Uh, papers it with ah, respect to ah, the data. Yeah.
1: Ah, excellent. So let's let's disambiguate that. The word incorrect. What do you mean by incorrect? Spell that out, and when you okay. make that concept do some work.
0: Cool. So, well, for one, if there's any um, empirical data involved, the the collection and the analysis <laughs> of that has to be mathematically sound. Um. I guess if if it's an empirically free paper, then. Uh, so, you know, sources are cited correctly. There's no plagiarism. Um,
1: so, say, say, let's go to the former. So, okay, pe- people are making claims about the world, right? Mm-hmm. They're making claims, back to the deluge department. They're making claims about patriarchy. They're making claims about remediating homophobia, which are papers of transphobia. They're making claims about things, and those claims... They then point to the journal articles that are mm. coming out of bogus fields and they use those to justify institutionalizing public policy.
0: Mm. Yeah. So, okay, so,
1: so, so, so there, that's a huge problem. And somebody yeah, pointing yeah. this out, two things, somebody pointing this out is not a Nazi.
2: Yeah.
1: Okay. S- second thing, f- the example I use is you-, you think about you know what phrenology is when you check the bumps on the skull.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's like that, of, the skull size also and, and stuff like that, right?
1: Yeah, it's like you look at the protuberances and you make inferences about someone's race and character and all that stuff. I, yeah, it's sense. I don't know if you've seen Man in the Hot. Hi- yeah, it's total bullshit. I don't know if you saw Man in the High Castle, but they there was a little piece in that. That's a wonderful Amazon show of the uh, woman oh. goes to the Nazi headquarters and they start measuring the bumps in the skull. Anyway, but the point is oh. that if a whole university system were dominated by phrenology, you know, like kids come in, they check the size of the skull, the bumps, et cetera, <laughs> and then they assign, you know, different courses and scholarships, et cetera, based on those bumps,
2: mm.
1: and, and let's say that it's Republicans doing that, and I, I point that out, like, what is your evidence for phrenology? That does not make me a Democrat or a liberal. That makes me someone who does not think, who who may not think, not even does not think, may not think there's sufficient evidence to warrant belief in phrenology. It is not an ideological position, it is an epistemological one. Okay, same example, switch it from Republicans to Democrats. All the Democratic liberals are in universities. They have the same phrenology structure, testing somebody, et cetera, et cetera. I say, hey, I don't what is the evidence for this stuff? And and that does not make me a Republican or a conservative. It makes me a healthy skeptic. And the response to that, anything other than here's the evidence, means that you're trying to institute an ideology and you have no evidence, because if you had evidence, you'd just present it and you wouldn't need to call anybody a Nazi.
0: Exactly. And and just to spell this out for people uh listening, I, I think you were alluding to the fact that peer review has to serve its function because peer review mediates what we are able to cite as evidence for other claims, right?
1: Yeah, and, and, and it becomes a kind of evidence itself. Like,
0: we yeah, you know, yeah. from this,
1: like, you're trying to figure out, you know, I hate to talk about the virus, like, you're trying to, you're trying to figure out, oh, you know, like, look at it in medicine, Oh, you know, or look at it in engineering, like, what material should we use
2: mm-hmm. to
1: build this bridge? And, you know, should we use balsa water. I mean, I don't know the first thing about civil engineering. My dad was a civil <laughs> engineer, though. But you know, what, what what about this chemical? I don't know that big chemical with the big H name that Trump is talking about. That hydro uh, something. I don't know
0: something. Like, yeah. So
1: yeah. So like the, so so then people do tests on those and they see okay, well you know does this work? And I'm not I'm bracketing aside the the ethical dimension of it, of just taking people and you know testing sure, them like fatigue sure. etc. Et but I'm just saying like there are ways to figure that out. And it's not particularly complicated. It might be expensive, but it's not complicated. And mm. then people look to that. Oh yes, you know this substance with H, whatever it is. Th- this this works. Okay, yeah. so then we start institutionalizing that, forming public policies, mm. saying doctors can prescribe it or whatever, whatever. All the other, I don't know, kind of social accoutrements, or uh, you know, we we uh, change bureaucratic regulatory apparatuses so that people can get the drug more efficiently and quick etc but the whole idea is that then people act on what's coming out of peer review and the reason they mm. act upon it is because they think it's knowledge is because they think that people have tried to falsify it
0: mm that's a that's a that's a really good point and
1: yeah and so <clears throat> can i just add to that real quick yeah of course yeah so if somebody publishes a paper with an N of, you know, two, or someone publishes a paper and says that, you know, this drug H, or et cetera, or, or, or uh, let's use something that I can't even pronounce the drug, so I'd probably use another example. But, you know, look, I built a, a a bridge out of balsa wood using, you know, $20 pieces and 10 pounds, and it supported, you know, two 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 you know, freight trucks or whatever. I'm trying mm-hmm. to think of an absurd example on the fly, but the point is that if that gets through, it brings the process into question and the process should have some kind of corrective mechanism so that the things it's like a sieve but instead mm-hmm. of gold you're dropping in propositions you need to make sure that there are no holes in the sieve you need to test it's like penetration testing whether that's trying to sneak a bomb through an airport metal detector or you know white hat linux or white hat ha- ha- hacking or any of that stuff
2: yeah. and
1: what we're seeing now is We're seeing an ideological agenda pushed by a bunch of, you know, Dawkins calls them pretentious charlatans. These people are pretentious charlatans. And then we see philosophy departments broadly in service to ideologies. But they don't, the gatekeepers have fallen, right? The gatekeepers of reason aren't philosophers. They're just like everybody else. They're just as susceptible. In fact, they're more susceptible. They're more susceptible because they're groups of smart people who are better at rationalizing bad ideas. And the bad ideas at this point are the dominant moral orthodoxy. And they have a kernel of truth to them. Systemic, you know, has them in systemic racism. Yes, bigotry. Yes, uh, you know, marginalization of people. Yes, is mm-hmm. that morally wrong? No question about it. We, I personally believe, we can rationally derive why that is. Philosophers have then taken that up. They're in that orbit, and there's an incentivization structure within journals like Hypatia. You can't get published. Not only can you not get published if you if you um, write something that goes against what's morally fashionable, but if it does happen to sneak in and the reviewers don't notice or know it is because of the way you categorize race and gender differently across theoretical lines of literature, they punish you for it. So when it, you get enough of those, you get tenure. So philosophy itself is in service and not all philosophers, but the discipline mm. of philosophy, there's just no question it's fallen. Mm. I, another one. Can I give yeah. you one? I'm sorry. I'm talking a lot, but I have another example. Yeah, yeah. So I was telling my colleague, I have to be very careful what I say to people because I always stop the conversations once they get interesting because I don't want to get reported for anything, and I have so many people constantly reporting me for things. That there's no point to it anymore. But that you know, you know, have you heard of the mention use distinction?
0: I I have, but I don't know what that means. Okay, well we'll come back to that later, but I'll just
1: throw the tidbit out. Okay. Like if I, it's the difference between mentioning a word a sentence and using the word and specifically these people want to collapse the dimension use distinction as it comes uh, down to the n-word because they think that that and there, there are lines of literature based upon this but anyway let's bracket that and go back to the piece
0: okay yeah yeah oh it's just just so so i'm clear on it though <clears throat> it would be the difference between between using the n-word um like like just saying the n-word to you know a group of to- black kids well, it would, yeah, it would be saying it to someone versus saying the word in the context of discussing the word, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's okay, correct. Okay. Or like Huck Finn, like Huck Finn says this, and then, and then yeah. so they want to collapse, <clears throat> mention station But to understand that, you need to understand the epistemological architecture upon which that's built. And that's another conversation that's also related to this, but I'm happy to talk about it, too.
0: Yeah, well, I guess the, the, the part that just it sticks out to me and... And I think this should just be, I mean, you know, a public service announcement that you've been doing basically. But, you know, this and you you talk about it in the book, but this sheltering and and um, making illegal certain ideas doesn't actually strengthen the group that's making the ideas illegal. It actually weakens them because you don't know how to argue against them when they inevitably surface. Yeah.
1: Yes. How could you? you not only could you not know? I mean, not only do you not know, you could not know. You could not know because you don't hear the other side because many, I'd hesitate at this point to say most, the majority of people look at the classroom as an ideology mill. They want to replicate something that they're utterly convinced of, but they don't see that it's a kind of moral myopia, right? Which Mm. is particularly paradoxical and bizarre given that these people are under the broad sway of applied postmodernism. You'd think of all people that they should be able to have figured that out by now. And so what they do is they try to think that there are these things like, you know, it goes back to Paulo Freire's per- Pedagogy of the oppressed, the Brazilian educator about, uh, you know, critical consciousness, anything dealing with critical in it. You could talk to Jim about that, who's literally yeah. the one of the world's, if not the world's leading expert at this point on it. And they then, inst- they then, go for the great culling they call it ideological diversity of conservatives or moderates and then liberals and then they're finally left with people who have complete ideological convergence and they go for colleges of education that teach teachers and so it's predicated on that book and the whole purpose of education and there's a and they go for psychotherapy and then five to seven years later As Peterson and myself and a bunch of other people have said, this stuff leaks out of the university. Mm. These people go on to get jobs, et cetera, et cetera. And then they took those concepts that were popular in 2014 to or 2016 to 18 microaggressions, trigger warning safe spaces aren't popular anymore. They're kind of out of moral fashion. They've Mm. evolved in a sense. And Lindsay and Pluckrose's book, Uh, Cynical Theories, talks about that. Uh, from Pitchstone Press. It's forthcoming, but it's been delayed due to this crisis we're in. But anyway, but the yeah. point of all that is that where is the discipline of philosophy in this? Philosophy should be, look at, I mean, look at, I guess it's no surprise they killed Socrates in the apology, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, there you go. I guess I just would have expected better. It's just heartbreaking.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I can really empathize with this. And it's hard. I guess it's hard for... um, Not hard for me to admit that this is happening, but it's it's really hard to acknowledge it, I guess, because, you know, I, I really, I mean, I fell in love and am still in love with the discipline and want to see it revived. And I guess maybe, you know, I don't know if I had a really nice sampling of philosophy professors, but... I think I was given at, at the University of Pittsburgh, I mean, every single professor that I had and every single grad student I had was a beacon of openness and you know awesome. rigorous honesty. It was, it was incredible. How long ago? Uh, I just graduated in 2019.
1: Yeah, Pitt is one of those exceptional schools. I, I'm, I'm, I'm a little taken aback that you didn't see any of it, but it well, could be regional and
0: oh I, I i so i did but not really from the philosophy faculty at all i i saw oh, that's it, wonderful uh, yeah no it was it was it was incredible i mean i didn't know that this was an issue until like my like junior year um wow. and and i actually um w- we we've done a couple episodes on it on that's bs but um uh, I, I was part of the resident assistant system there, yeah, A- and that is where all of this this stuff really yes. just they pulled back the veil. Um, yeah,
1: because that's where the offices of diversity, equity, and inclusion, yeah, they, they get to bleed through to everything. Yeah,
0: yeah, but I mean, it's just you know, I. I, I almost don't want to believe any of this is true, even though I know it is, because I, every single professor I had just was I mean like 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 fucking amazing, like just absolutely inspired me to want to continue, you know, studying this stuff throughout my entire lifetime. And I just you know, and I, so, I,
2: you,
1: you, and so that you're doing what you should be doing is you're saying, look, I didn't see it, and thank you for that. Thank you for an honest examination of truth and a rigorous scholarly education, and. Yeah. that's the kind of model i i would love to see I, I would love to see that take over nothing would make me happier especially now at 53 i got really nothing to lose anymore anyway i mean <laughs> i'd love to see that that happen so i think what you're doing is lauding pit for that is fantastic
0: yeah it, it was incredible it's just and i i i really hope that the because I, there were also points of danger there. I think in in the the on-campus living or or residence. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't remember what the actual title of like the organization is, but, yeah. um, residence life. That's it. it I mean, the, these ideologies were pervasive, and right. you know, um, parasitic really on that entire system. Right. Um, yep. and, and it was. I remember I had exchanges with philosophy majors, uh, in in that system who betrayed. I mean, everything that, that you and I love about philosophy, a, you know, every, right. <laughs> every just cornerstone of the, the, the study, they totally betrayed. Um, so, okay. So getting to the end of the piece, because we've been jumping around, um, y- yeah. you know, you, you say that um, you, you sort of end where, you know, you're reiterating that, um, you know, philosophy has sort of um, fallen backwards, um, in a sense, from from what it used to be. and. Right. And I, I, I wonder what, because I desperately want to see it saved because it's had such a yeah. huge impact. Um, what are the active steps that younger people like myself can do um, to, to return it to its glory?
1: Well, I, I, don't, I don't really know the answer to that question. I mean, yeah. I, I know that this is a... I don't really know. I I think that maybe this isn't the answer you want, but the first thing is to educate yourself. And I think that there are a lot of mistakes that people think about. Like they think about these things in terms of, oh, disinvitation or, oh, free speech matters. Yeah, okay, free speech matters and disinvitations are bad. but, But what's really going on? What's really going on isn't really about free speech or invitations, what's really going on is about cognitive liberty. And there are a, groups of people who are almost universally um well, they're 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 petty ideologues, I don't really know how to say it, but that they've tapped into something. It's like it's like Trump, you know, he, he's a savant when it comes to giving people, he has a single virtue, if you could even call it a virtue, like giving people <laughs> demeaning names, and somehow that is an unbelievable vaporal weapon to borrow from D. Yeah. um so so the question you know what can you do is you can always make sure that you can do the best that you can do in your own belief life right mm-hmm. you, you can be willing to revise your belief you can do exactly what you did we'll talk about you know you pit the, the uh the, the pit philosophy department what they did and then you can let people know that um just little things like asking the feasibility questions, how beliefs can be wrong, why should they value the rigor of scientific method, and, and mm. being more humble about what people claim to know. And maybe you shouldn't attack people who have different beliefs than you. But yeah. I, I don't really know how to answer that question, but there are certainly baby steps that, that you can take. Mm. I, I think if you pursue philosophy and you find a department, you're like, holy shit, this department has been utterly taken over and is in the sway of intersectionality. Probably best to keep your mouth shut and get your degree because they're not going to change their mind anyway. They're just going to make your life miserable the moment that you they realize that you're not on that team.
0: Yeah, which is, I mean. I guess that that's the most disappointing thing of all is is, you know, like you, you say in the paper, philosophy should be the sanctuary of open discourse. Um, right. And and, you know, I think it's really important for us to emphasize that it's not happening everywhere and to the same degree. But it is happening in some places in some departments um, that that's that's being lost. Um, yeah, and so, and yeah,
1: if anything, this current crisis, one of the things that this current crisis may do is. I predicted for quite a few years now. I didn't obviously see the mess that we're in, but there will be a financial reckoning. And I think that universities are, excuse me, departments and disciplines that have eroded or or low degrees of public confidence may be the first in the chopping block. And mm-hmm. if philosophy's departments get, become underfunded or defunded, I think that they have to, it's a moment for them to get back on track and be honest with themselves. But it is also a reckoning that they should have known better. Of all people, they should have known better. But the anything that was protecting them from any of this is the fact that smarter people are better at rationalizing bad ideas. And groups of smart people are even better still at rationalizing bad ideas. So now we can understand why philosophy has fallen sway to, to some outright silliness and things that are demonstrably false
0: yeah and i guess you know it we should have said it many times earlier in the conversation but i think both of us are obviously coming at this from a position of i mean desperately wanting to preserve something that we love you know all of your complaints about philosophy don't say anything bad about philosophy they they say something (laughs) bad about where it is now Uh, yeah
1: yeah that's exactly right thank you for clearly articulating that and capturing it. And, and it and it again i i think it's the third time i said i find the whole thing heartbreaking i really do yeah. i find it heartbreaking
0: yeah so okay i want to ask you a couple of quick questions about um the new book uh that i have kind of noticed since since reading it nine or so months ago um uh-huh. well the first thing is uh i'm curious uh for you how often do you find yourself uh, consciously employing the tactics and strategies that you mention in the book
1: I used to find myself consciously employing it at all time, uh, all, all times. But now it's most of it becomes second nature. I have a hard time with some stuff like I still say "but" a lot when I should be saying "and." Mm. So, so there are a lot of little things. But um, I find myself—I've done it so much I don't really need to consciously em- employ the techniques anymore. Except the the "butt" thing always gets me.
0: Yeah. The, the funny thing is, is that I, I don't often feel um, <clears throat> like tempted to use the, the strategies and tactics when yeah. I'm in sort of a fun disagreement that isn't sort of heated with someone I respect. Mm. But I, I I seem to very often use the tactics and really almost in second nature at this point, um, because I've, I've been using them since your first book um, with, oh, with with. People that I don't, and this, uh, you know, I, I have to be careful, I guess, with how I phrase this, but when when the person I'm speaking with doesn't seem to be in control emotionally or well-informed or sort of reasons-responsive or, or level-headed, mm. then I do seem to find myself um, very explicitly using the tactics uh, in the book. Do you think that that's a misguided way to use it?
1: No, I don't necessarily think there's a mis. I think the only misguided way is that if you wanted to either try to put a belief in somebody's head, or to kind of artificially manipulate a situation, the book is in a sense, it really is a, a self empowerment tool to have better conversations. And that
0: yeah,
1: that was our hope. And I guess that's also what's just so heartbreaking about to bring it back to the philosophy thing. It's like, I'd really love to have conversations with people about this. I, 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 There's just, you know, even when I said to you before, think about that. Like, the reason I stopped going to philosophy department dinners and such is because one of my colleagues was just spouting nonsense about race and gender, and I didn't want to just call that individual out because I thought, yeah. oh, no, this individual will report me if I did that. So I just, I mean, but what's the point? I mean, th- there is no, like, there's just, I, at least I perceive it as an atmosphere of fear and retaliation if you want to question, if you want to question a moral orthodoxy. And so already our conversations are in hard mode, already are, there are structures built in structures into the university just to be one context. But that's why like when I taught in prison, I found those conversations to be so freeing. And so like, they weren't mediated by anything. Everyone was just like, they were just real conversations
2: Um, yeah yeah
1: so but yeah i I think that that's one of the things that we need to get back to and i wouldn't so much worry about as long as just sincere i wouldn't so much worry about you know misusing or or misapplying any of the techniques
0: Mm -hmm. yeah no I, i i agree with you that it it just, I guess it sucks that it seems like we're unable to have as many conversations where just, you know, I, I just, I, I, I'm smiling right now, even just recalling some of them that just go until like, you know, two or three in the morning about just right. deeply interesting and philosophical topics. And it's just, you know, sleeves rolled up. Everyone right. is just, you know, there's like black circles where, under people's eyes. And it's just, I mean, I love it that. Be, yeah.
1: way way it should be. But, you know, m- maybe maybe I'm uh, just it's just not for me anymore. Maybe I haven't left philosophy, academic philosophy, left philosophy, and then I left with that. So, yeah. or maybe my conception is entirely wrong altogether. And ev- almost everybody else is right, except <laughs> me and your your professors at Pitt. And we're wrong. But everybody else is right. It should be philosophy should be in, in service to these exogenous ideologies. I so I'm again the only way you would know that is to have a conversation about it, right?
0: Yeah. Which which, you know, isn't possible, or at least is becoming increasingly less possible. Um, right.
1: Especially when there are mechanisms in place to punish dissenters and heretics, blasphemers.
0: Yeah. <laughs> which I mean, you know, we've mentioned Socrates several times already, but that I mean that was his MO. He called himself the gadfly of Greece. Exactly. Yeah. Um, do you have a couple minutes for some rapid fire um, philosophy questions?
1: Uh, uh, I kind of have to go to, I have to serve dinner but but sh- but shoot
0: okay I'll give you one last one because we've hit all of these adjacently already um, yeah, yeah. okay so give me give me because we've talked about stuff that you dislike a lot Give me yeah. uh, the reason why you still love philosophy
1: you do the reason why I still love and, and when you say philosophy you mean like, wh- wh- like you mean like the love <laughs> of wisdom you mean like reading the text what, what, like what do you mean some That's, people when you huh. say that to them they'll, they'll think like so yeah I just want to what do you mean by that
0: um well okay so what what do you love about philosophy then is it the teaching is it the reading of the texts what is it
1: it's two things for me it's The teaching philosophy aspect, and I've published in the Teaching Philosophy Journal, I'm fascinated by teaching people how to lead better lives by cleaning up their thinking, Mm. recognizing problems, and correcting those in their thinking and making that process fun so that they can enjoy it while they do it. So I, I like the teaching of complex ideas Ancient ideas, but not exclusively ancient ideas. You know, um, from littered throughout the history of Western intellectual thought. I don't know that much about Eastern stuff. I studied it for a while, but I forgot it. But I think what I love most about philosophy is it. They're just this. It's like they said in the in the Encounter at Farpoint, or the the last episode of the Star Trek: The Next Generation. Sky. The sky is the limit. You know, the, the sky. Yeah. The sky is the limit when you take the reins and you just let your mind go, I guess it's a kind of like maybe you see it in some places in interpretive dance or you see it in some places with art. But the thing about philosophy that it it gives it a structure to those... to those moments when we're trying to figure things out, it gives it a structure in which you can engage that dynamically and interactively with other people to really live your best life. I've always found that when I was reading philosophy or really thinking about something in a a way that challenged myself, I was always leading my best life. And I guess that's the additional tragedy of this whole thing. Is that when you don't allow students and you have engagements with other faculty members in which you aren't allowed to ask those hard questions? What do we do with people who have it's Peter Singer's, you mentioned Peter Singer. What do we do with people who have IQs under 25? Like that's a really important question. And if the response is don't talk about that, don't render your opinion or talk about that, it's gonna traumatize somebody. Well that you're you're no longer doing philosophy. You you may be doing something else, but you're not doing philosophy yeah and Singer's singer's new book asks a uh, 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 it's a uh, short chapters of uh I, don't know, I think 50 or so questions really really good questions and and i guess that that really is a tragedy because so you're basically robbing someone of an opportunity to think through an issue by learning about multiple ways to think about that issue and multiple conclusions that's not philosophy anymore i don't, you're doing something
2: else
0: yeah no, no, that, that's that's really well put. Um, and as someone who's on the other side of the teaching experience, um, I just I have to say, I mean, you know, thank you for being um, like the professors I had in college, people who who really are making philosophy what it was meant to be. Um, and thank you uh, once again that. for coming on the show. Yeah, I really, really appreciate it.
1: <clears throat> well, thanks. I appreciate that. I I said before, I can't do what I do unless I get some kind of support. I I really hope that we can turn a corner here, that we can restore trust in our public institutions. I I don't see that happening. I don't want to be overly pessimistic, but I don't really see any broad sweeping changes. But I do see hope that there can be a lot of small changes where individuals can get together, where people can still study the texts that are out there and engage those in a fun and, and honest and sincere way. All right. Well, thank you for having me on, Jordan. I appreciate it.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much, Peter. All right. Bye. Bye. Well, I hope you found that conversation as illuminating, inspiring, and motivating as I did, um, because it really was a pleasure and a a treat to talk to Peter again. Uh, Everything that we uh, discussed and referenced, I will put in the description below in the show notes, as well as Peter's uh, books and where you can find out more about him. You can support this show and my efforts by going to patreon.com forward slash Jordan Myers. That's J O R D A N M Y E R S. And I ask that you really seriously consider doing that um, because it costs me money right now to create this show which i love doing but it would be really nice um, if i could break even on this endeavor Um, and i do put a lot of work into it you can help me in non-monetary ways by sharing this show on social media you can rate it on apple podcasts so that more people will find out about it you can um, like this video or subscribe to the youtube and to the rss feed You can discuss my conversation on your own show, and you can um, just broadly share um, this show with anyone that you know who would appreciate it. You can contact me with guests or recommendations for topics at Plato's Cave Podcast at gmail.com. No apostrophe in there. And you can follow me on Twitter at Jordan underscore C underscore Myers. And, as always, thank you for listening, and keep struggling to escape the cave. Plato's Cave is produced by Muckraker Media. You can find out more at muckrakermedia.org.